This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by CLR. You know what's manly? Cleanliness. Yes, cleanliness is next to manliness. And with CLR, you can master the art of cleanliness. CLR keeps everything sparkling by dissolving dirt, calcium, lime, hard water spots, deposits, and soap scum. No scrubbing, no harsh chemicals, pretty darn manly. So trust your clean to CLR. Visit clrbrands.com today or pick up a bottle from a retailer near you. clrbrands.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Why do some NFL teams dominate year after year? Now, some would chalk it up to talent, but my guest today says it all comes down to the culture that the head coach intentionally develops for the entire organization. His name is Michael Lombardi, and he's the author of Gridiron Genius, a masterclass in building teams and winning at the highest level. For over three decades, Lombardi has worked as a general manager or coach for various NFL teams, and he's worked along some of the greatest coaches of the game, including Bill Walsh, Al Davis and Bill Belichick. Today on the show, Michael walks us through what these coaches did to develop high-performing teams and how those lessons can apply to leaders in other kinds of organizations as well. We begin our conversation discussing how legendary 49ers coach Bill Walsh created standards of performance and a culture of excellence that turned the worst team in the league into Super Bowl champions within two years. Michael then shares the qualities top coaches and players possess and how recruiters of every kind can really figure out whether or not someone will be successful at the next level. Michael then shares what leaders can learn from Walsh's innovating West Coast offense, why Belichick obsesses about special teams, how Belichick and Nick Saban came with a new approach to defense, and how Bill Belichick prepares for games and fights complacency. We also get into the importance of how a QB carries himself and why it's important to begin a drive down the field with an energizing play. And we end our conversation with Michael's predictions for the future of football, including how we're starting to see a return to the game's rugby roots. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash gridiron. All right, Michael Lombardi, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. I'm excited to join you. Well, tell us about your career. You uh, have been in the game of football as a coach and as a general manager for a while. How did that happen? Well, I mean, it really started in, in with a television set. You know, a lot of people were influenced by Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show. I was influenced by a guy that looked like he belonged at all my Sunday dinners, it looked like he was my uncle. He had a big nose, olive skin, and I thought, geez, this guy should be, and he has the same last name as me, so maybe I should try to follow his career path, and I did, and and I fell in love with the game of football. I fell in love with the idea of being in the NFL, and I just really went through high school and college with the idea that I was going to be in the NFL and work, and I played this game, Stratomatic Baseball, when I was a kid. Even though it's a baseball game, it was about team building, and me and this kid, Danny Reynolds and Michael Sanino, we, we played countless hours on this board in my mother's kitchen, and we wore out our dining room set. And I, lo- I fell in love with team building, and I fell in love with drafting. And so that kind of with Lombardi and then that, and then listening to Springsteen tell me to go chase my dreams, those three things were the perfect storm. So you, did you have any ambitions to play football, or did you know at a young age you weren't going to play, that you were going to be somewhere doing something else with the game? I mean, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to play at the highest level. I did play college football at Hofstra. I played high school football. I played college football. But I knew that, you know, just based on those people at that Sunday dinner, we were all short, squatty, and ate too many carbs, that I probably wasn't going to be involved in the NFL or my talent level. So I, I just tried to study the game. When I was in college, 
Brett, I would go to coaching seminars my freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior years all throughout the country in January and February. I wanted to learn about football. I wanted to study football from a from a coaching standpoint because I knew this is what I was going to do. So, and you ended up working with some of the greatest coaches in the game, you know, Bill Walsh, Belichick. I mean, was that sort of chance that happened or did you put yourself in the position to work with those guys because you saw that they were doing something different with the game? I mean, it was serendipitous by far. I mean, I got a job at the 49ers to basically be Bill Walsh's driver. I mean, and they hired me because I wanted to be in personnel. I would work for real, relatively little money. And I worked in personnel and I got to befriend him and he needed something. And the timing was right. It was the perfect storm. It's, you know, I had Walsh, you know, he had a beautiful car. He needed somebody to drive him. There was no car phone. It was, so I was there and I just worked with him. And then when I went to go to Cleveland, probably the biggest mistake in my career, leaving Walsh, I stood to stay with Bill for longer. But then in 1991, I meet this guy named Bill Belichick and that changed my life. And and really, just being around him, he taught me more about football, how to think about football. And we developed a grading system in Cleveland that's universal to what they use in New England today, what they use at the University of Alabama, Iowa, many other places. So a lot of it was serendipitous by far. So in your book, Gridiron Genius, you talk about the insights you've got from working with these these coaches about leadership, team formation, strategy. And I want to dig into this stuff because not only is this stuff applicable to football, but it's applicable to other aspects of life. Let's talk about Bill Walsh first, since he was the guy you first started working with. For those not who aren't familiar with Bill Walsh, what's his story? So Coach Walsh started out as a, you know, played at San Jose State, a really smart, cerebral guy, very divergent in thought. You know, he always saw coaching is teaching. He didn't see coaching as, as yelling at players. He wanted to teach and he wanted to be divergent. And he worked his way up through the ranks. He worked at the Raiders. He worked in a lot of different teams. And he got a job with the expansion Cincinnati Bengals. And he had a quarterback named Craig Virgil Carter, Virgil Cook, who could throw the ball, Craig Cook, who could throw the ball, but he got hurt. And then he had another quarterback that didn't have a strong arm. So he devised this thing called the West Coast Offense which we know today. And it's really a, a basically long handoffs to get your receivers in space and not try to run the ball. So he was divergent in thought. And then he was all about building a culture organization that he could adhere to. And he could, that he believed organizations won, not cultures. And he used to tell me driving him in that car that, you know, you've got to read books about Tom Peters. You've got to read In Search of Excellence. You've got to read Warren Bennis. You've got to read Peter Drucker, because we are in the leadership business, not just, you know, we're not gym teachers where we throw out the kickballs and say, okay, everybody, let's play. There's an intellectual side to this game. And that really empowered me to learn that. And I spent most of my career studying that. So football is a business and business can be football. And Walsh was the first one to show me that. And then when I met Belichick, that all came into fruition. Well, we'll talk about the the West Coast offense, that innovation that Bill Walsh made here more in a bit, but I want to focus on this culture aspect because that's what you start off talking in the book that the foundation of the 49ers success was the, the creation of a culture that was done by Bill Walsh. What did the culture of the 49ers look like before Walsh became, came in as head coach and what changes it, did he make? It was completely a mess. I mean, Joe Thomas was the general manager and he controlled the game from the general manager's chair, which Walsh knew was wrong, right? 
like the coach has to really run the team. He has to be in charge. There has to be a player personnel philosophy of the players they're acquiring. That wasn't the case. So when Walsh took over in 1979, he basically took over an expansion team. The only problem was they traded all these draft picks for a guy named O.J. Simpson, who was washed up and done. And so not only did he take over a team that was really bad, the team had no assets. So it was worse than an expansion team. And the first thing he did was put a culture in place. He talked about what everybody in the organization needed to be able to do. Don't even pay attention to the scoreboard. Pay attention to your job. Pay attention to your role in this company. Always put the team first. Always behave in a manner of a 49er. And he defined the manner for what he wanted you to behave in. So it was very detailed. And he focused on not the scoreboard, but the organization and what it was going to take. And everything else, once he built that, he felt like would take off. And this was, uh, he called it his standard of performance, the sort of checklist of things that he was focused on. Yeah, and that's, that was something he would go over. 17 principles, and they were really small and minor, but he reminded you of them every day. And here's the beautiful thing. He never really differentiated from the woman who answered the phone, Carrie Parnham, to Joe Montana, the starting quarterback. They Both jobs were expected to be meet the standard of performance. That's what he expected. And so in the book, I talk about how he told me to remind him to fire the PA announcer because that guy had to had to adhere to the same philosophy and the same beliefs. So, you know, he he held everyone accountable and accountability is the number one thing in creating culture where everybody's accountable. Culture can't be for one person and not for somebody else. It has to be for all. Yeah. So, I mean, a few of these standards of performance that he, the 17 principles, I mean, it's really like you would read this list and be like, well, that's really banal, but I mean, I think that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, it's things just like demonstrate character, be fair, be deeply committed to learning and teaching. Uh, when I read those it reminded me a little bit of John Wooden and his, uh, and his sort of, you know, really uh, like homespun principles that he passed on to his players. No doubt. I think Wooden really influenced coach Walsh. And I think that simple is always the best way. But so often we get caught up into thinking we have to be complex in systems and in organizations. And, and, you know, common sense oftentimes isn't common. And common sense when you're putting together an organization does go a long way. And people need to be reminded of it. And people also need to be held to a, 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 a standard. And they need to be coached on it. I think you just, you know, people think culture is something like, when you call the pest control company and they come over and spray to kill the bugs, right? They spray and they leave. Well, culture, when Walsh walked in the building every morning, his job is to maintain and drive the culture. He didn't assume it was all going to be the same. So that's the big difference is culture is something you have to work on every single day. And that's why it has to be simplistic. It can't be complex or else people won't comprehend it. And what was the, the effect of the standard of performance? Like how did it turn the team around? It took two years, but eventually he did, you know, and he really wasn't worried about, he wasn't worried about finding a quarterback or finding a receiver. He was more worried about finding the right players. He was much like what Belichick talks about. We're not trying to collect talent. We're building a team. He felt like if he built the organization first, he could get the players to play at the higher level, that he could coach them to a higher level. And that's the same in business. You know, the most talented team doesn't win. It's the team that works together that wins the most. So, yeah, the other coach you've worked with in your career and you spent a lot of time 
focused on in the book is Bill Belichick. Were him and Bill Walsh sort of cut from the same cloth? You know, other than the way they dress, completely, completely. Never raised their voice, highly intellectual, could see problems. And, and the next book I'm going to write is going to be The Secret to All Victory Lies in the Organization of the Non-Obvious. It's a quote attributed to Marcus Aurelius, although even though he didn't say it. It's really the genius of these two men. They were able to see what the non-obvious is, and they could organize that, and they worked on those details, and that's kept them so far ahead of the game that most people can't see it. I, I, link, I like it to when, you know, Sherlock Holmes, the, 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 the novel, the character, the, the fictional character, when he walks into a crime scene and he sees seven things, and everybody sees them, but yet he can use deductive reasoning to explain what they mean further. That's Walsh and Belichick. They had this unique ability to see the non-obvious, and they could prepare their teams. And they also understood their number one job was to drive culture. Today, Belichick's job is not to devise new plays for Tom Brady, to devise new defenses, to maintain his culture every day. And did, so I mean, Bill Belichick, he's created this dynasty with uh, the New England Patriots. He's got to start in Cleveland. Did is has anything changed from when he was a coach at Cleveland to when he's a coach now with the Patriots? Everybody likes to think so, especially the people in Cleveland. But having worked with him in both places, I would say the only difference is Robert Kraft allows him to build the culture, and Modell really didn't understand what he was trying to do. Modell was more interested in winning the fans over, uh, appeasing the the fans, giving them something. He used to tell me all the time, kid. Kid, we got to give. We got. We sell hope here. We got to sell hope. That's not Belichick. Belichick's about getting the team. His message is to the sixty players in the room, not the three million. The the winning will get to the players. We'll get to the court. So the only difference, and the only real difference, was Modell really didn't understand what Bill was trying to do culture wise, and Kraft wanted a culture. So you spent a lot of your career helping teams hire coaches. When you're out scouting for a coach, what are you looking at? Like, how do you know if a coach is a good coach? Well, I mean, it's no different than hiring talent. I tell people all the time, you know, the FBI doesn't open up the phone book and look for serial killers. You must define what you want in your coach. And it really comes down to really, and I wrote about the five areas of leadership in my book, but essentially it's four areas of leadership that must be adhered to, to have a great coach. The first one's called management of attention. And that means you have a plan. You come in with a complaint. When Bill Belichick walked in my office in 1991, he handed me a piece of paper, which I will give to the Hall of Fame the day he goes in. I own that paper. And it said exactly who we were going to be as a football team. This is what, what he wanted. And we developed a grading system to build that. That's management of attention. The second is called management of meaning, which means you can explain your plan to people. You can explain it to everybody who's involved and they get it. They understand it using metaphors, using comedy, using video, however you do it, you can explain it. The third is management of trust. Are you going to be consistent enough to where the players trust you? Or are you going to have double standards for different people in the organization? Again, the standard of performance, management of trust. Can I trust you to be consistent? The fourth and final area is management of self. Are you going to look internally to yourself and grow, admit your mistakes, Find ways to improve as you're on the job. Every single coach that I've researched in my career that won Super Bowls was good in three of the four. The ones that are not are only good in two. And you can see it pretty clearly. You can see it at a press conference. You can see that when they talk to the team. You can see that they fail in two of the four. The ones that are good in all four, like Belichick and Walsh, they win consistently. 
And what I think is interesting is that you kind of came to the insight eventually that you're not looking for a coach, you're looking for a leader. So I think when people think, I'm looking for a coach, it's a guy who's got strategies, coming with new plays. But all those things you talked about are the same thing you'd look for in a you know, chief executive. No doubt. It's the same position. And this is what's happened to the NFL. That's why there's such a – I mean, Brett, think about this now. Belichick has won 78 games the last five years. His next closest competition are the Chiefs at 60. He's lapped the field by 18 games. So he's really lapped this field. It's, it's, it's way, way, way he's increased his dominance over the league further. And the reason is, is because teams are hiring coaches who know schemes, but they can't lead groups. So they'll have a good year and then they'll have a down year. As Walsh told me, you know, we're only competing against eight teams here. This is when the league had 28 teams. And I wondered what he was thinking about. And I thought it was more about, you know, which team had a quarterback or which team did this. And really it was about eight cultures. And today in the NFL, there's really only eight cultures. You know, no team understands how to build a culture. And half the problem is when you talk culture, they have no idea what you're talking about. So all these coaches, Walsh, Belichick, they're sort of like they have a coaching tree, right? Coaches that they've coached, they've gone on um, and coached their own teams. Are there any other coaches in the NFL that have worked with these guys that really understood this this importance of culture? I don't think so. And I think they miss it. I think they're not often – some of these guys have had success (laughs) – and copying the offense. I mean, when you look at Walsh's tree, Mike Holmgren had success in Green Bay, but he had Ron Wolf with him. When when he went to Seattle, it wasn't quite as successful, but it was. So there's exceptions. Belichick hasn't had that because too often Belichick disciples try to be Belichick. You know, I always tell people, look, you know, when Frank Sinatra in the 70s was losing his audience, he put on a leisure suit and put beads around his neck. And he wasn't Sinatra anymore. He wasn't authentic. Nobody believed him. The people in the 70s didn't like him, and the people that that loved him hated him again, hated him. So you have to be authentic in who you are. You're a tuxedo cuffling guy. Wear a tuxedo and cuffling, even if it's not popular. And I think that's what the biggest issue has been with Belichick's guys that have left. Walsh's guys have had some success, Holmgren, but they had more success staying at San Francisco where the culture was in place than when they went to Steve Mariucci went to Detroit or George Seifert went to Carolina or Ray Rhodes went to Philadelphia or went to Green Bay. They've had more success in San Francisco than they have when they try to do it on their own. Well, it seems like one coach in the, at the collegiate level, at least, who kind of gets it, or who gets it, is Nick Saban. He worked with Belichick. And yeah. he's different. He's still Nick Saban, but he, he gets the importance of culture from Belichick. No doubt. And, and it was a great marriage of the two of them. I mean, they're both, they're both different, but they're both similar. But Nick used to complain. I laugh all the time. We would have a staff meeting at 5 o'clock after Wednesdays and Thursdays practice, and Nick would always say to me, you know, dog, this is killing me. I, I got too much work to do to be sitting in this staff meeting as Bill's running the tape. And at Alabama, after Wednesdays and Thursdays practice, they have a staff meeting and Nick runs the tape. So <laughs> sometimes what you don't think is right for you ends up being right for everyone. So you mentioned earlier that Belichick, he's not interested in collecting talent. He's interested in forming a team. What does that look like? How do these guys go about recruiting a successful team? It really starts with this one premise. It starts with mental toughness. And they define mental toughness as doing what's right for the team when it might not be right for you. And so when you value the name on the front of your jersey more than you value the name on the back of your jersey, you're probably going to be able to play at the Patriots. 
you know, and so he then figures out players that fit the system that he wants. So he defines what he wants with this grading system. And then he finds players that fit that system, but they also fit the description of mental toughness. He wants to be a physically, mentally tough team that can play in any physical, any environment, weather-wise, and can focus and concentrate and win in the fourth quarter and is willing to do the things needed to be successful. So he's no different than the Navy SEALs. He's trying to eliminate people, not find people. And through elimination, he ends up having a core group of players that together bond. Now, when his players leave and go other places, they never look as successful as they did in New England, partly because they're not playing within the role. They're not playing within the name on the front. They're more about the name on the back and things don't go as well. Well, recruiting players is really hard because when you're, especially when they're in college, you see them, you know, see their statistics, they do well in college, but then when they get to the pro level, they don't do as well. There's been a lot of you know, recent examples of that. But then also, like, how do you figure out those more soft attributes where there's not a real like number for it, right? Whether they're a team player, whether they're hardworking, whether they got mental toughness, like as a recruit recruiter, how do you figure that stuff out? Well, you, you know, past performance predicts future achievement. So, you know, when you interview a kid, you have to ask questions or you interview an employee, you can't ask general questions, you'll get general answers. You know, if I said to a young man, do you work hard? Every answer that I've ever gotten back in my 35 year NFL career has been, oh, yeah, man, I work really hard. But if I ask the question, give me five examples of how you work hard, all of a sudden, humda, humda, humda comes into play. You know, if they said, hey, I just got back from lifting weights and you say to them, well, give me the five, the five exercises you did, weights and how many reps with each. All of a sudden now they start stammering. When you ask specifically what they do and you don't get the answer back you need, you know, and then you could say to them, hey, what was your greatest moment in high school? And they talk about, well, I gained 200 yards against uh, Ocean City High. Well, what about did you win any games? Yeah, well, we won the state championship. Well, that, now that tells you who this guy is, right? You know? Right. And so you can learn a lot, as Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot from looking. And if you look in the right places and ask the right questions, you'll find what you want. And another thing you all did was you actually checked the references, right? And besides just asking the the kid the questions about his performance, like you'd go into the town where he grew up and like ask teachers, girlfriends, neighbors uh, about the kid. No doubt. I mean, look, we're in a multi-billion dollar industry and kids are going to behave the way they want us to see them. But when you go to their hometown and you start snooping around in their hometown or you go to the college, instead of going to the football office, which the football office is never going to talk bad about their players because that that hurts their recruiting. They're going to lie to you. We know that. So if you go to the local tavern or you go to the sororities and ask about player X, Y, or Z, they pretty much know what's going on. They'll give you the real scoop and then you can paint an accurate picture of the guy. All right. So there's some advice there for hiring. Even if you're not in football, check the references and then get specific with your questions. No doubt. And you got to prepare yourself. The, 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 and then the questions that they ask you back really tell you more about who they are. You know, that's really, you, if, you, if they're asking dumb questions, you may not have, a, you may not have somebody you want to hire. Really smart questions should intrigue you. It's what they ask you as much as what you ask them. Were there any instances in your career where you were recruiting and a player on the numbers wise didn't look like he had a lot of talent there? Maybe there's other talented players, right? He was, he was good, but not as great as some of these other guys. 
but you went ahead and went with him because he had some of those intangibles where you thought this guy could be a part of the team and he ended up doing really well. Oh, you know, that's really, and if you fit him in the right role, yeah, I mean, we've done that quite a bit. I mean, when you look at, like, I'll take Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, when we drafted Jimmy in New England, he really did, you know, he was in the second round. There were four other quarterbacks picked in front of him. But we brought him in that day, and he, and he was – we knew he could handle Tom Brady and not be intimidated by him. We knew he had the attributes to go in a room and be able to not be in all of the greatest quarterback of all time. So, yeah, you, you really need to understand what's exactly you're looking for and if the player fits. And sometimes, you know, look, you're going to make mistakes, but here's the valuable thing you have to do. When you make a mistake, instead of sitting there and not admitting your mistake – you got to do an autopsy on why you made the mistake, and you got to really dig deep and be honest with yourself to figure out why you made that mistake. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. You know those beloved raggedy sweatpants, the ones you lounge in after just waking up and just sitting them the rest of the day? But how often can you actually wear them out of the house? Well, now there's a pair of pants that lets you feel like you just rolled out of bed, but without looking like you just rolled out of bed. Introducing the all-day, everyday pant from Public Rec your new go-to for style, comfort, and versatility. They reinvented the classic sweatpant design with custom-made performance fabric and a tailored fit. Got a pair of khakis. Let me tell you, they're really comfortable. It's made out of sort of an athletic material. Feels really good. Moisture wicking. It's got the faux fly on the front, so it looks like you're actually wearing pants, even though it feels like you're wearing a pair of sweatpants. These are great if you want to be comfortable but look presentable when you go out and get your 7 a.m. sausage biscuit from your favorite sausage biscuit place. Now, if you'd like to try this out, Got a special offer for you. Go to publicrec.com slash manliness and get 10% off your first pair of the all-day, everyday pant automatically applied at checkout. That's publicrec, P-U-B-L-I-C-R-E-C.com slash manliness. Get 10% off your first pair of the all-day, everyday pant. As always, they got free U.S. shipping and free returns. Don't sleep on this opportunity. publicrec.com slash manliness for the all-day, everyday pant. Also by Indochino. Indochino is founded on the belief that you don't need to spend a fortune on a custom wardrobe. So we've been talking about Indochino for a couple of years now because they've been a longtime sponsor and supporter of the Art of Manliness podcast. I've told you all about my navy blue suit that I got from Indochino, how I customized it, how I wanted it to look. I decided to go no pleats on this, no cuffs on the pants, decided how I wanted the jacket to look. You send in the measurements as well. In a few weeks, you have a custom made-to-measure suit sent directly to your door. And here's the best part. You're going to pay about the same price as you would for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. But Indochino does more than custom made-to-measure suits. You can also get custom made-to-measure shirts or outerwear. They got nice overcoats. You can also get custom and made-to-measure for you. So if you want to start your style upgrade, you can get $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more when you go to Indochino.com and enter manliness at checkout. Plus shipping is free. So that's Indochino.com promo code manliness for $30 off your total purchase of $399 or more. That's an incredible deal for made-to-measure clothing. Check it out if you need a suit. If you already have have a suit, check out the custom made to measure shirts as well as the outerwear. And now back to the show. Let's dig into uh, specific parts of the game. You look at special teams and you talk about how Bilicek is actually really obsessed with special teams because that's a, that's a part of the game that gets overlooked by fans. It's like, okay, the punt team comes on, they punt, they're off the field. Why did Belichick or why does Belichick obsess about special teams? And what do you think that, te- what do you think that shows or what insight about leadership can we get from that? Well, first of all, he, he's trying to build a culture, right? And if he says to the, the special teams coach, I, I don't really care about special teams. I just care about offensive defense. His culture falls apart. But if he makes everybody on the team play one special teams, then everybody's all in. 
And if you have a special teams practice and you have guys engaged in special teams, they have to pay attention. Then they're building a team. When you coach the players on special teams being important, you really are who you want to become. And so that's what he does. He allows that to set the tempo for his team. I think, and I write about it in the book. That's what Bill Snyder, he took over Kansas State. I'm sure you remember how bad Kansas State was. Yeah. And he built it through the kicking game because he wanted an all-in. As Angela Duckworth says, becoming all-in has a tornado effect. And Belichick knows if he can win the special teams, then he gets an all-in mentality and it helps him build this culture. Yeah, and as you said, special teams is interesting because you have players from both defense and offense working on it. So it carries over to the other aspects of the game as well. No doubt. And you need them because, you know, when you value it, so now the game's on the line and we need a return or we can't have penalties on special teams. You know, you, they've been educated. They've been taught this. And if you're playing complementary football, which means you need your offense to affect your defense and your kicking game to affect all of it, and you're teaching that, which Belichick does every Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, then that's really important that you engage your team in special teams. Well, let's talk about offense. So we mentioned earlier, Bill Walsh is the guy that developed West, the West Coast offense. For those who aren't familiar with the implications of it, like how it was such a revolutionary thing, what was football like before Walsh introduced the West Coast offense? It was all about establishing the run. It was about three yards in a cloud of dust. It was get, you know, run the ball. Quarterbacks didn't really want to throw it very much. I mean, Bob Greasy, I think, threw 14 passes in the Super Bowl in 1972 that beat the Redskins. I mean, it was a game in between the hash marks. It was a tr- it was a trench warfare. But then the rules changed, and like everything, it opened up the game. Pass blocking became easier for offensive linemen. So then, therefore, you know, you could throw the ball, and the game moved. It was always two backs in the backfield, and it was always you know, two receivers. And I like it to the movie industry. And I write about this in the book, Bob Evans, Robert Evans, the head of Paramount decided, you know, he couldn't compete with all the other studios. So instead of trying, and because all the other studios had money to hire actors, everything was about the actor, you know, hire John Wayne, hire this actor, and you're going to have a hit movie. So he went the opposite direction. He hired writers. So he bought books. He bought Love Story, The Godfather. He bought all these books and turned them into movies using obscure actors because he could afford it. And that propelled Paramount back into business again. And it's the same thing in the NFL. Once the rules changed, you had to stay ahead of the curve. And now it became a passing league. And Walsh was the cornerstone and was on the head of that. And then he became very creative and divergent in those thoughts. Yeah, I like that Evans example because that's an example of a, an executive working with what he has and actually, it, it, at, at first blush, it looks like you're limited, but can actually turn into an advantage. And the same thing happened with Walsh. Like The way he come up with, came up with the West Coast offense was he, he had a quarterback that was okay, and he could only could throw sort of short passes, but that was it. But he built an offense around that guy and revolutionized the game in the process. No doubt. And, and I think, you know, there's a great scene in Apollo 13 where I think we all, in, in whether you're in football, you're a high school coach who's ever listened to this, you know, you're the women's lacrosse coach, whatever. You know, you're you're like the scene in Apollo 13 where they have that giant table and these scientists are sitting around the table and the guys are stuck up in space and this guy walks in with a box and, and throws stuff on the table and says, we have to make this into that using nothing but this. And that's really the essence of what you are as a leader. 
You've got to figure out where you need to go, figure out what you have, and then get it done and not complain about it. Don't spend time worrying about what you don't have. You know, sometimes when you're in companies, you're, well, we don't have any money. We don't have that. Money doesn't solve any problem. Thinking solves all problems. Right. I mean, you see that in baseball. There's a lot of teams with a lot of baseball, with a lot of money, and it's, it's not solving the problem of losing. Early, That's right. right. And we see it all the time. I mean, you know, look at the, look at the Washington Nationals. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they let Bryce Harper go, and they're in the playoffs, and the Phillies are watching. <laughs> right. That, well, that's that idea that, again, when that happens, people think it's talent, right, will win games. But when it's a team, like a, a, it's a, it's a, a buildup right. of a team that wins the game. And, and understanding what, what truly helps you. When I used to get on the team plane and I worked for Al Davis, he would always say to me, do you know why we won? Do you know why we lost? And if you can't define in your business why you win or why you lose, most of the time, most people don't understand what business they're really in. They've defined it poorly, and, and, and that's why they're not having success because they really don't understand what they're in. Ray Kroc wasn't in the hamburger business. He was in the real estate business. All of a sudden, he became a billionaire. You know, And so you have to understand what truly is your business and, what, and how you can benefit from that. And most of the time, teams and sports don't really get that. They think they're in one thing and they're not. I mean, people think Amazon is a is a – you buy products on it. They're a logistics company, right? You know, and what, and they and they do it better than anybody. So it's how you define who you are. So in the West Coast offense, the quarterback plays an important role in it because they have to make sometimes decisions the last minute. It's not just like you don't go into play knowing you're going to throw this guy. You, it, West Coast offense gives you options to throw based on what's thrown at you. So they have to be able to think on their feet, think with fluidity like how did these how did bill walsh go about finding a good quarterback that could do that what was he looking for he wanted somebody with great foot quickness he wanted somebody who could move he wanted a boxer like muhammad ali that could move around the ring he wanted somebody that could could move quickly and throw quickly he wasn't concerned about arm strength he was concerned about rhythm and timing and anticipation he was really wanted somebody that had a feel for the position. You know, we called it a crib thing. When your mama lifts you from your crib, you either have it or you don't, right? And so he wanted that crib thing. He wanted that mentality. And, and, and you could see it. And he wanted guys that had past performance. You know, typically great quarterbacks are great quarterbacks in high school. They just don't show up. I mean, one of Ryan Tannehill's biggest problems, the backup quarterback at Tennessee is, you know, he played wide receiver. He's not instinctively a quarterback. You know, quarterback's not a position that you just learn into. You kind of have a feel for it. And Walsh was always looking for those guys that could. So, yeah, he, he spotted Joe Montana, Steve Young, and those guys were dominant in the game. Yeah, I mean, he went and worked out James Owens down in Los Angeles, and Montana was there. And, you know, and there it all happened. He saw Montana. Mo- nobody loved Montana's arm strength. They didn't think he – they thought he was a, a backup. And Bill Solomon – like, okay, this is exactly what I want. And again, it's the perfect way to do it because he was going against the variance of the marketplace, right? He picks Montana in the third round. Meanwhile, guys are getting picked in the first round that aren't as good. And what really made it really interesting is, is there was a quarterback at Stanford that Bill had coached when he was at Stanford, and Bill didn't use his bias. He used the objectivity to pick the right guy for him. So he saw what he really needed, and he, Montana was better, and so he picked Montana. Yeah, and in the book, you highlight some of the 
factors that you all look for in a quarterback? Because a quarterback is essentially, he's like a, a command, it's a battle command leader. Like he's on the field leading the team. And so you're looking for traits that help in that. Like one one trait was carriage, which is basically how he carries himself, which I right. think, I mean, d- dig in more of that. What does good carriage look like to you? Well, I mean, look, you know, you're the leader of the team. Your team has to have your personality, right? Teams that don't have a quarterback's personality don't doesn't have a personality. So you've got to carry yourself. Your job, if you're the highest paid player on the team, is to make somebody else, is to make everybody else better. And you've got to be able to motivate, yell, demand. Your your persona of who you are, the prom king, you know, that, that's the quarterback. You've got to have that. And it sends and it, and it, it inflicts confidence into everybody else around them, you know, and, and you feel it. There's a leadership that goes on the field. Hey, fellas, we're in the huddle. We got to get this, guys. Come on, we're going to get this. Don't you worry. And you'll get people to follow you. But if you're in the huddle, well, all right, we're going to run this. You know, who's following you? Are there any quarterbacks in the game today that you think have good carriage? Oh, I think Philip Rivers has incredible. I mean, he's just so into it. You, you know, I, I love when I I love the I watch him play. I think Deshaun Watson has got it. I think he understands it. I think that you know Patrick Mahomes clearly has it. You can tell. You can feel it. And then there's guys like, I mean, Jared Goff just made a boatload of money, but I don't feel it from him. Is he a good player? Yeah, but he relies on other people being good. But I think you can pretty much spot it. And if your team doesn't get its personality from the quarterback, where are we going to get it from? we got to get it from somewhere. Because the coach and the quarterback is who drives the team. Uh, Let's talk about defense. So we mentioned earlier that Belichick worked with Saban when they were at Cleveland, and they came up with a new approach to defense. What did that approach look like? Well, so they understood that the the best way to win games in the NFL was real simple, keep people from scoring. Not revolutionary, right? But where do people score most of their points? Like there was a – they did an analytical study about putts, right? They went through and they studied 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 putts all over the – the PGA and the conclusion that they found out about putts was the ones that are closer to the hole usually are the easier to make. Not revolutionary, right? So it's the same thing Belichick and Saban did. If we if we can stop scoring, we'll be a better defense. But where do we stop scoring? And that's the red zone. And so they focused their attention on the red zone defense, the area in from the 20-yard line to the back end line of the red zone. That's called the red zone. And they played a different style of football down there so that became much more difficult for teams to score. And they were able to turn the ball over down there, and they were able to create field goals instead of touchdowns. Those four-point plays really helped keep the game down. So when you go down there in the red zone and you don't score a touchdown and you have to kick a field goal, you know, that's four points come off the scoreboard. That hurts you at the end of the game. That's where Belichick and, and Saban really, we called it red two, and that's where they really had – great success about being able to keep people from scoring. Real simple, but oftentimes overlooked. Yeah, I mean, it's deceptively simple because it basically it's a 3-4 cover 2 defense. And it's the same thing all the time, but once the play is called and run, like there's different permutations of it that can happen after the, the ball snapped. Yeah, and so it's like zone basketball, zones in basketball. You know, it's how do you move your zone and and at some point, all zone defenses become man based on the distribution of the receivers or the basketball players. And so that's well they did it. And so because people were running certain routes down there, they could play certain routes and they took those routes away 
and people didn't for a while didn't have an answer. It took a long time for them to adjust to it. I mean, some other insights you you highlight in the book that regular folks, people who are just in business, can take from how Belichick and Saban manage their defensive teams. You know, things like about understanding timing in and off, like and disrupting your opponent's timing. That that's that's key in in a successful defense. Yeah, I mean, it's all about like you have to understand like the twelve most important plays in a football game, or the twenty-four most important plays in a football game are what we call drive starters. If you start the drive with a big play, first and ten, you hit a forty-yard pass, you're going to score probably seventy-five percent of the time. But if you hand the ball off and get three yards, you're probably not going to score because there could be a one play that makes you go. So. If you start your drive with a really good drive starter, you can get places. And if you conversely, if you start the opponent's drive with a negative play, you're going to get off the field. So if you spend time on those 12 plays, hey, we're going to start the drive with this. We're going to start the drive with this defense or this offense. You can create a variant. You can create a variance and you can help you set yourself up. Now you're not going to hit them all, but that's the mentality that you have to think about. There's also this point that I liked. It's uh, if you're not talking, you're not winning. What do you mean by that? Communication is the number one thing in all of sports. It's why Belichick doesn't want to put jersey numbers on young players. He wants them to talk. He wants them to communicate to one another as human beings, not 49, not 63. So we communication is vital in every business. You know, we're in an age of communication, yet I think sometimes we communicate less with one another. You know, we have text, we have email, we have phone, we have all these ways, and sometimes we lack communication. Like, how can there be an interpretation problem when we have all these ability to communicate? And you've got to work at communication. You know, you've got to work at it so that people are all on the same page. Because once again, when you're working as a team, you know, it's really important that we function as a team, not just work as a team. So at the end of the book, you walk us through a week before a game of how Belichick prepares his team to play a game. This was a, this was a playoff game, but I imagine it was the same thing for every game, even if it was just a regular season game. Like how, I mean, can you get, so, I mean, you can't go into the detail exactly what you talked about in the book, but give us an idea of how much preparation, how much thought Belichick goes into game preparation. Well, I mean, he's, he really does a wonderful job of breaking down what the team can do and what they can't do. And then he communicates that to his team. And then he tells the team how we have to play the game to win it. Here's what we need to do. We call it the points of emphasis, offensively, defensively, and naturally in the kicking game. And then we start practicing that week on those points of emphasis. And we're driving home the critical moments of the game. Hey, it's third and one. We need to be able to make a play here. Hey, we need to do this. And so all week is really he's giving a test because he truly believes practice execution becomes game reality. And so we're working constantly on the elements of the game. Wednesday is red zone, it's it's first down, it's drive starters, it's all the areas of the game. Thursday, it's nickel, it's sub runs, base runs. And Friday, it's got to have it. When we got to have a play, what do we do? And if they got to have a play, what do they do? And so it all comes together. And on Saturday, he sits with the coaching staff and he tells them, look, fellas, here's how the game's going to go. Here's how we prepare it could go this way. We need to adjust that way. It could go that way. Then we'll adjust this way. And after the first quarter, if we're not sure where it is, we'll make adjustments. And that's just and, – and so everybody's constantly thinking about how we have to play the game, what their job is in the game, 
and what they have to do to be successful. I mean, what I was impressed by was how much preparation Belichick put in himself to prepare his team, right? Like the, the game prep for him began the, as soon as he finished the game, like the game, the previous game, he would start going over film to get, get the team ready for the next game. Yeah. I mean, nobody works harder. Uh, I mean, he, he writes up all the defensive backs that, so he can have a relationship with the quarterback. So he can call Tom Brady in his office on Tuesday afternoon and say, Tom, here are all the defensive backs for the, the Baltimore Ravens. Here's their strengths. Here are their weaknesses. Here's the summary. Here's how we're going to attack them. And it, he keeps himself involved in the game. Here's the special teams. He's the head coach. He's the best coach on the staff. He makes the most money. And guess what he does? He coaches the most because he's that valuable. And I think you can really see his work ethic. I mean, he wastes no time. If he's on the treadmill, he's reading. If You know, he's constantly focused and he concentrates on what's the most important things that have to happen on each and every day to get the team ready. He knows it's his job to get the entire team ready. And it's the assistant job to manage the team. Remember this. It's this so important. Leaders do the right thing. Managers do things right. Belichick's the leader. Got that. And did Walsh have a similar approach to Belichick? No doubt. Always. Yep. Always. Very much involved in everything that we did and wanted to make sure that they understood it. And what Bill did, because of his intellectual, he created a, a think tank. You know, he was so smart and creative. It forced George Seifert to become creative in his thought and do different things and come up with his own way. Because, look, we're all competitive with one another. And as you mentioned earlier, the, I mean, what, another thing that impressed me about these guys, Belichick and Walsh, is that they don't yell at their players. They're, in fact, very quiet. And somehow they're able to convey that message to them during these meetings in a way that's very impactful. Yeah, they teach. They don't yell. I mean, they don't tell them players to play harder. They explain what they need. Everything's in detail. They treat you as a professional. This isn't good enough. They have no problem telling you if it's not good enough. They're not scared to confront you. Most leaders are too worried about what somebody else is going to think about them. So they sugarcoat it. They lie. Well, that's not bad. We're okay there. That's good. No, they, people want clear and concise instruction. And if you give it to them in an honest manner, they'll listen. But if you try to just sugarcoat it or hide behind it, no one's going to pay attention to you. So they've never raised their voice. They rarely get angry. I mean, I've, I've seen them get upset. But they instruct and teach. They don't yell. When you were working with Belichick, you know he's become one of the most dominant coaches in the game of football. In that sort of situation, it's easy to become complacent. How do you? How does he battle that? How does he prevent getting complacent? I, I, you know, that's a great question. I mean, he's he's always about the next thing. Vince Lombardi has a great line: "The greatest reward for doing is the opportunity to do more." And I think Belichick does wants to do more all the time. He's chasing something bigger than Super Bowls. He's chasing perfection. And so, therefore, he's really not worried about the scoreboard. He's worried about just doing his – he loves the process of his job. That he loves. And so he does it really well. And that go back, goes back to Bill Walsh's idea of you know, let, you know, let the scoreboard take care of itself. Don't pay attention to the scoreboard. Just focus on the process. That's right. And most, most organizations focus on the bottom line, focus on the result. They don't focus just on doing the process. I mean, but that's, that's a, that can be a hard sell to an organization, right? Where a coach says, look, I don't care about the score. I don't care about the wins. I want to make sure that this process, this culture gets in place, and then the score will take care of itself. Like, how do you make that sell as a leader 
to an organization? It's hard. Miami's experiencing it now. But I think what you have to have is an owner who is, is fearful. Winston Churchill once said when the Germans were in the Channel Port and he became the prime minister, they asked them, they said, how come they made you prime minister now when all through the 30s, no one would listen to you? He said, because fear does the work of reason. And I think that the only way you can get people to buy in that is if they're fearful, they'll never get it right. It's hard to reason with somebody who thinks they have it. The Redskins, you can't reason with the Redskins. They think they're going to turn it around if they get Dwayne Haskins to play better or some coach or whatever. They don't understand. They're not fearful. When you get somebody fearful, Eddie DeBartolo was fearful. He had just had Joe Thomas. Joe Thomas traded a bunch of picks. He was at the he was at wit's end. He was the youngest owner in the NFL. He was fearful of losing something that he so deeply loved, and he gave Walsh the chance to do it. So we've been talking about Bill Belichick and this culture that he developed at the Patriots that has helped them become a dynasty. Now, I'm sure there's some people who are listening to this, and they're thinking about all the accusations of cheating that have been thrown at the Patriots over the years, the sign stealing, and then recently the Flategate. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I think, you know, in the first instance, you know, the signal stealing, I think signal stealing was a common practice in the NFL. If I told you some of the people that were notorious signal stealers in the NFL that are in the Hall of Fame, we would all laugh about it today. That doesn't excuse it. It's just part of the nature of the business that people were good at stealing signals. It was a competitive thing. However, that transpired. I wasn't in New England at the time. So I don't know exactly what was happening, what was being filmed, but obviously they were stretching the envelope. They've got fined for it. The deflate gate thing, Brett, was really ridiculous. When we first heard that, I was in the building. It was the most ridiculous story I've ever heard, and it's still the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. Quarterbacks' relationship with the football is the most important thing, and how they like the football is critical. And we talk about protecting the quarterback. Well, there was nothing in that game that, that they did to the football, and after it was proven over time, that had anything to do with cheating. So it's a story that manifested itself out of what? I don't know. They even admitted the initial report was wrong. They said 12 footballs were illegally deflated when they found out that wasn't to be true. So I would say this about Bill. I think Bill probably will do within the boundaries of the rules to make sure that he exerts all of the options that he has at his disposal to, to handle that. And, you know, I think most all organizations do that. I don't think it's unethical in what they did. I think it was basically a stretch of the rules, and I think that ultimately that's how it is. But it does not dismiss any of the success they've had up there because truly they just beat you with their, their teaching, their operation, not with cheating. So you've been at the game for a while. Let's end on this. What do you what do you see the future of football looking like? I mean, it, we're kind of in this weird crossroads with the game where people are talking about declining uh, interest from young players, even fans. I mean, is football going to be around in twenty five years? Oh, I think it's it's going to even be it's going to grow even further. Betting now has just taken over the sport. The interactiveness now of football, where where and we're going to see kids play Madden. You know, you're going to see kids at their seats at the stadium with the ability to call plays, with the ability to play Madden as if the game was going on. So you're going to have this eSport element at games. I think football is, with betting and with all the electronics that we have, it's going to be, it's going to be bigger and bigger as we go on. And, and I think it's, it's going to always come back to talented leaders that understand the essence of what it takes to win. But I, I think 
we're in we're in a we're in an age where it's only going to get more popular. What about the uh, the safety issue concern that a lot of people have? Do you think there's going to be strides in correcting that? I hope so. I hope so. I, I think we can. I think we've tried to. I think that you know there was a time where you know we weren't as concerned, but I think now we're getting better. And I think the longer we talk about team and having depth and not one player being more important than anybody, then you know that helps the injury factor because. If the Patriots don't have player Y and he can't play, they go to player B. And so you have to have that mindset. And I think if you force players to play if they're not healthy, that hurts the game. And I think the more you can convince your depth and develop talent, those are the teams that are going to come out ahead on this injury front. And one interesting forecast or prediction you have is that you see football kind of going back to its rugby roots. Uh, What do you mean by that? I think we'll see more. We'll, we're seeing it now. The single wings coming back. I mean, Lamar Jackson's running the single wing. If Baltimore had another quarterback on the field like Lamar Jackson, how dangerous would they be? You know, I think we're going to see. You know, Walsh used to sit on the team bus and doodle plays from the Clark Shaughnessy era of football. The single wing, the the the, the tight wing, and he would always constantly looking back at history. Belichick does the same thing. What old becomes new. And I think we're seeing a little bit more of that, that direct snap to somebody who can then run unbalanced lines, tight formations. I think football will, will metamorphose back to where we once were and it'll expand in the way we're doing it and be very entertaining. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the work you do? Well, you can follow me on Twitter, M Lombardi NFL uh, at Twitter. I, I'm there. I write for The Athletic. I, I do a podcast called the GM Shuffle every, every Monday and Thursday talking about the NFL. I write every day and I'd urge people to, to, to sign up for the email. It's called the Daily Coach. It's really a little bit about the idea came Coach Raveling and I, one of the greatest human beings of, in the world. George Raveling was a basketball coach at Iowa, Washington State and USC. He actually owns the, the I Have a Dream speech. And we decided that, you know, we feel like you, everybody needs a coach. If, if Steve Jobs had Bill Campbell to coach him, then everybody should have one. So we started this website called The Daily Coach. It's in your email box every day, uh, five days a week. And we hope we can inspire people to, to understand that they need to be as much, they need to be coached just as much as players do. Right, well, Michael Lombardi, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Michael Lombardi. He is the author of the book, Gridiron Genius. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can check out our show notes to find out more information about his work um, and also with links to other resources by going to aom.is slash gridiron. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about physical fitness, leadership, personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS to get a month free trial. After you signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>